Don't you just love the sounds small waves make on a lakefront beach? I'm all about the sound waves make on, on any kind of beach, but yes, lakes are, are very nice. I assume this was recorded from Teleco Reservoir? Yeah. But maybe first we kind of need to remind people where we're at. Oh, okay. Listener, if you haven't yet heard parts one through three of this series, please go back and listen so you know all about why we're here. So my whole family came along on this trip because I had a nursing baby. I couldn't go off and leave for a week. My husband and older daughter came for child and moral support. (laughs) And I ended up having to bring both my daughters with me when I went to tour the Sequoia Birthplace Museum and interview Charlie Rodermer, the director of the museum. The museum itself is pretty cool and has an incredibly thorough history of Sequoia. Go push that button that's lit up. Push this one? Yeah. Push that big one. It was around 1776 in what would become known as the Little Tennessee River Valley. They have a couple of these amazing shadow theater displays. The Sequoia Birthplace Museum was a TVA-sponsored project. Well, TVA hired a company, they came up with 38 concepts, and uh, one of those concepts was to build the Sequoia Birthplace Museum and tell Sequoia's story. But didn't they cover the sacred sites of Tanasi and Choda with the lake? It seems a little off that they would build a museum there, too. Right. TVA did help get this museum going, among other things, but that was not before they flooded the original sites. The Sequoia Birthplace Museum is one of the attractions that exists around the Teleco Reservoir that commemorates the Cherokees that used to live in the valley. About 40 minutes up the road, where it really feels like you're in the mountains, are the memorial sites for Choda and Tenasi. You know, you can can stand there and close your eyes and you can almost feel what these, the children were doing or the adults. You can't get any more important than these sites here. There's also a grave site for Oconestota. And Oconestota was the Cherokee that led the siege against Fort Loudoun. Uh-huh. And he was the only Cherokee identified during the archeological digs. And that's another story. <laughs> but that is part of the story we're going to hear today. There was an enormous amount of money. It was a huge project, one of the largest archeological projects in the country at that time. This is the story of Tanasi. This is the story about the epic battle to save the Little T. Today, we'll trace the last leg of the fight to save the river. This time, the farmers look to the Cherokees to do what they themselves couldn't. But along the way, some of the Cherokees revive their connection to their sacred history. In part four of our series, Together in Protest, Together in Death. On Middle of Everywhere, sharing big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Austin Carter. And I'm Ariel Avery. So so I was fishing and I was waiting. It's a fairly, it was a fairly shallow river, cool, clear, highly oxygenated. And I found, I was standing on an underwater log and 
there was another one and I went out on that. And my friend said, I'm on one too. Do you see what it is? It was a V-shaped setup of logs in the base of the river. And it was a shallow river. So the women and children would beat at the wide end with sticks and the fish would run down to the narrow end. I was on a Cherokee fish trap. This is Zig again, our protagonist and champion for the river. Out discovering the remnants of the Cherokees on the Little Tennessee. Yep. Now, I was actually given Zig's contact information from a tribal member who was one of the very first people I talked to for this whole story, as he was one of the Cherokees involved in the controversy. It's Bob Blankenship. My Cherokee name is Uganosti, and translated, that means sweet thing. Bob is an older member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee at 85. I was born and raised back in what's called the Big Cove community. So we raised farm crops, raised cattle, some cows, hogs, and milked our own milk cow. We had to do that before we went to school each morning and after we got home. Early in the morning, we'd get up about 4 o'clock, light the lantern, and go to the barn. And then we'd have to go to school barefooted until we sold our tobacco crop. And it got pretty cold out there in that frosty grass, chasing them darn mules and stuff. I grew up in the most rural, poorest part of the reservation. You, you don't feel bad about being poor when you ain't known up different. <laughs> Going to school on the reservation sounded like a real challenge. The kids started school with me, could not speak English, and they had to learn their English after they started school. I, I was the other way around. I spoke more English and very little Cherokee words. And the whole community was in that school. They had a generator to school, so they did have some electricity there because I had the job of going out and cranking that thing every morning when I got to school. Bob's young life in Big Cove was obviously sparse. And we had one car in the community of Big Cove, and that belonged to the mailman. Later on, uh, uh, one of the Indian medicine men, Amanita Sequoia, some lady, he, he treated a lot of people with Indian medicine. He treated one lady for cancer, and she gave him a Model T Ford. Amanita Sequoia was a direct descendant of the famous Sequoia who wrote the syllabary, and he practiced traditional Cherokee medicine in the community around the reservation and elsewhere in the region. My wife and I have been married 66 years. We got 17 grandkids, eight kids. There's a lot of blanket ships here now on the road. Yet to be 116th Eastern Cherokee to be on the roads here. A fact which brings me to our next fellow who I interviewed at the museum. I lived in Knox County all my life. Never knew I was supposed to be enrolled. I'm Gene Branson. I'm chair of the board of the Sequoia Birthplace Museum, enrolled member of the Eastern Band and their tribal rep. Gene is a relatively new member of the Eastern Band. Back in the day, uh, early to mid-60s, it wasn't as popular to be an Indian. Gene's mother was thought to be the last generation that was 116th Cherokee. But Gene found proof that his grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee. But it still took me seven years, so I made numerous trips to Cherokee. And the last little piece of evidence was a book that was in a desk drawer in the enrollment office in Cherokee. And Colonel Bob Blankenship found it, the original onion skins. 
Once he was enrolled, he quickly learned the way some people in the Eastern Band see and evaluate others, particularly outsiders. When I started, I found out that they could see through your chest and into your heart and what you really mean. I like to think that I've gained a whole new respect for the Eastern Band and how they operate. Colonel Bob uh, asked me if I would serve on the board. Of course, that was the opportunity I, I was wanting. I was, when I got all of our family members on the road, I asked them, give back to the tribe in some way. Gene and Bob were both involved in the Teleco project and the ensuing controversy, but not in the way you might imagine. We were tasked with taking four by eight plants. Plats were paper records from the telephone company that Gene was working for. So we had to take a big wad of those plats and cover every road where the water was coming up. We had to ride every road, count every pole, every anchor, and the plats had the footage of the cable. So when they retire all of that stuff in mass and take it out, it has something to do with ad valorem taxes or something like that. It's a benefit to them, of course. Um, they probably counted off their income tax for years because of that. And as Gene was doing this work, he was also witness to the valley being stripped of everything. We would have to ride through. The bulldozers were taking out stumps and tearing down houses and burning houses and things like that. We'd have to ride through and see people moving out of their houses, loading trucks, cars, pickup trucks. You could see the sorrow in their eyes. But they, uh, they took out everything. Stumps, trees, uh, roads, <laughs> they took it all out. Bob, however, wasn't a part of any of this early on. He was actually overseas when the dam project started, serving in Vietnam. I came back here at the end of 66, and by 72, I was a planner, head planner for the tribe. As after I was a planner, I first became aware Really, uh, around 19, uh, probably 74 and 5, Dr. King is the one. Dr. Dwayne King was one of the most respected scholars of Cherokee history at this time. He's the one that took me over there to the Teleco Plains and started showing me these sites and got me interested in uh, that overhill area. I asked Bob how much he knew about that area before this. Not very much. Huh, so neither Bob nor Gene were fighting this dam when the farmers were in the 60s and early 70s. And Bob didn't even know much about the history of the Cherokee in the valley. Yeah, seems surprising, right? Yeah. There are many surprises to the Cherokee side of the controversy. But to start, let's get into how the excavations got started in the first place. You remember Gerald Schrodel, our Cherokee archaeological expert from the first episode? Sure. You know, when I first went to in 72 was the first year I carried out field work in Teleco. None of this existed. There was no controversies. There was no nothing. It was, and it was all normal because the history of TVA was to do what? Build dams for flood control and recreation. Gerald was brought on because he specialized in Cherokee archaeology, and he was working under another researcher in charge of the whole project. Well, that's where I first met Jeff. He was in the bottom of a pit there at Ice House Bottoms, and then Dwayne walked up to the pit. My name is uh, Jeff Chapman. 
Uh, I'm the Director Emeritus of the McClung Museum of Natural History and Culture at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. The last uh, five years of the project, I was a principal investigator. We've talked before about how there were so many new laws coming out that the Teleco project was having to deal with. Yeah. Under emerging uh, laws, preservation laws, excavations were mandated, salvage excavations, to learn about the occupation in the valley. The National Historic Preservation Act we mentioned before was passed in 1966. This required that the TVA also had to put funding towards these digs in order to preserve the artifacts. And because the Teleco project had been facing injunction after injunction, the dig was allowed to go on and on. Everybody thought Teleco would be over and done with very quickly. And this is why at the beginning, the only only real work that was done was at Choda. And, and that was pretty much it because everybody thought the whole valley was going to be flooded. So as it drug on, then we went, wait a minute, there's a whole another archaeological record here going back eight or 10,000 years. This stretched on year after year after year. And the TVA had acquired so much land for the project that there was a lot to be studied and preserved. There was an enormous amount of money. It was a huge project, one of the largest archaeological projects uh, in the country at that time. And it generated enormous amounts of data that, it, that today still are very, very important for people doing research. But just like every other aspect of the Teleco project, the politics surrounding the digs evolved as it went on. At first, I don't know how it happened, but I know that TVA was actually bringing some Cherokee people over there to help in those excavations. At the very beginning of the project, there were several tribal members, young folks, who came and helped excavate there in the valley. This was in the early 70s. Wait, so the Cherokees were helping exhume their ancestors' graves? Yeah. Zig and his group, the Friends of the Earth, knew that the sites were going to be flooded, and he approached the tribe. They convinced us they were digging up our graves, so we joined that, and the tribe had what they called the, they called them, like all things, the Bones Committee. But on the other side of things, the researchers worried about what might happen to the artifacts if they didn't excavate and preserve them. And our biggest worry was if we didn't excavate those burials, they would be looted, they would be destroyed. Remember, TVA had bought up all the land, and that left the archaeological sites open and unprotected. So we know that there were lots and lots of burials at Toqua, and there were large numbers of burials that were destroyed by looters. Yet, by the very nature of digging up the artifacts in order to preserve them, these sites were also being destroyed. That is the irony of the whole thing. It takes the destruction in order to generate the research. Do you happen to know why it took the Cherokee so long to get involved, to get their voices in? I would be total speculation. I think we've seen, if you look nationally, you've seen an increasing involvement and engagement by indigenous peoples concerned about protecting their, their heritage and the like. In the late 60s and 70s, this was just emerging. It was not a strong force. So I, I just think it was not really something on their radar screen. The times, they were a-changing. 
Tucker was sort of caught at this interface of huge changes in archaeological thinking, environmental thinking, civil rights thinking, the role of government agencies, and on and on and on. So it was kind of caught in the, the vortex there of all these things that were happening. After the environmental impact statements and then the snail darter failed to end the project, the hope was that the Cherokee case might give a third bite of this apple. And that's when we come back. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. When we left, the Cherokees had started taking issue with the desecration of their ancestral burials. Now, even though the Cherokees were latecomers to this fight, Bob had been working with Zig during the lawsuit in the Supreme Court and was in Washington when the exemption was signed. We had pressured Jimmy Carter to veto that exemption from the Endangered Species Act. And the chairman of council, Chief John Crow, and I and Dr. King were up there with the Friends of Earth. After the Triangle killed the Supreme Court opinion, we prepared the Cherokee case. Zig, of course, was not about to let a little exemption from Congress bring an end to his efforts. Because the pork barrel had rescinded all the laws. They couldn't rescind the Constitution. Bob had always been saying, by the way, that the constitutional claim was something the TVA couldn't override. And he said... Use it, use it, put that in the complaint. I said, no, 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 we're going to hold that back. The Supreme Court was not strong on Indian religious rights. So it wasn't a slam dunk. And we wanted, I wanted to keep it in my back pocket. The First Amendment guarantees a person's right to the free exercise of religion. Plus, the Native American Religious Freedom Act was passed in 78. And so the Cherokee religion was the basis of our case the second time around. And for some reason, this was now the time when the press suddenly took notice. Zig wrote about their press conference in his book. A reporter in the front row reacts with a yelp. It's Phil Shabakoff of the New York Times, a pioneer in covering environmental stories. How can you say that, he challenges. How come it's like now we hear of all this, about the farmer's land being taken for real estate development, about benefits getting so inflated, about Cherokees. Why didn't you tell us this long ago? This is a story that the American people needed to hear. God damn it, are you out of your mind? We've been trying to get you reporters to cover the story for almost three years. We distributed more than a dozen information packets at your press buildings, I personally put several of them in your inbox with photos and maps and explanations about how this damn's an economic disaster. Look, we handed you quotes. We handed you information from the God Committee decision. We set up press conferences with farmers and Cherokee tribal members. They came here to Washington and none of you came, no one. And you blame us for not getting the story across? Wow, 
it's interesting that the press would cover the constitutional argument so much more readily. I wonder if this was a sign of the times or if it was just an easier story. Or maybe a bit of both? So as far as the First Amendment argument, I know the graves were being destroyed, but how did the right to practice religion really figure into this? Well, the sacred sites of Chota and Tanasi were sacred not just because of their historical significance, but also because of their ecological uniqueness for the Cherokee. Medicine men had been gathering roots and herbs from the shores of the river. Bob had been treated with some of these medicines. And I didn't know nothing about the medicine other than when I played the Indian stick ball, he treated us with medicine, and he took us to the river before the game and after the game. And they'd feed you some darn terrible tasting stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's that damn rat, rat root that grows along the river. Oh, okay. So if the sites where the medicine men got their medicine were flooded, they wouldn't be able to practice their religion anymore. Exactly. But the Cherokees had also tried back in the early 60s. They had reached out to Justice Douglas, which is why he came down to float the river and write the article back in 65. And the IRS had had audits, had gone and audited the Cherokee tribe. And, and they backed away. They were scared. I, I talked with a number of Cherokee. There were the old traditionals who really cared. And the moderns who often didn't know what was going on. All I knew was that one of our Indian medicine men had lived over there about five years. And that was Amanita Sequoia the kin to the original Sequoia. Ben Bridgers was the attorney uh, for the Cherokee at that time, and, and he was wonderful. He got Amanita and, and Lloyd Sequoia right away to uh, say that they would do depositions. It showed me just how important it was uh, as a part of our past to be preserved and protected. And I didn't know about all the different villages that were uh, former villages that were put under the lake. Uh, but as we really got involved with the tribe and Friends of the Earth, and we got into the court fights. Uh, uh, we learned a whole lot uh, uh, that, that was presented to the court. Probably one of the greatest ironies of all this was that so many of the Cherokees who knew very little about their tribe's history in the valley began to learn their own history as a result of this court case. Many Cherokees, like Bob, learned a lot about their history and religion when hearing Amanita's deposition. This is a voice actor reading some of it. I am Amanita Sequoia. I am now 78 years old. I am a full-blooded Cherokee Indian. My great-great-great-grandfather was Sequoia, the Cherokee who invented writing for our people. I am a Cherokee medicine man, as my father was a medicine man, and my grandfather was a medicine man. I have gone to the valley of the Cherokee on the Little Tennessee River all my life. I lived in Chota for six years, from 1945 until 1950. I still go back to Chota and to the river for my medicine. I usually go back uh, three or four times a year to get medicine. It is important that the medicine be gathered by a medicine man, if it is to work a cure for the sick person. 
If these lands are flooded, the medicine that comes from Chodo will be ended, because the strength and spiritual power of the Cherokee will be destroyed. I cannot live without practicing medicine, because it is what I live for. When a person dies and is put on the ground, his knowledge and beliefs are taken into the ground with him. If this land is flooded, and these sacred places are destroyed, the knowledge and beliefs of my people who are in the ground will be destroyed. If a body is dug up and taken out of the ground, this destroys what that person has taught us. All that a person knows has gone into the sacred ground where his body is buried. That is what gives the land its strength. As we were planning the Cherokee suit, we were thinking about how we would maintain morale because it was looking so dark. Zig was trying to keep the farmer's spirits up. I told them that there was virtually zero chance that Taylor was going to give an injunction. So we knew that TVA would have a go ahead and we could run to the circuit and try to get an injunction again, but it would take months and months. So Zig, the bleeding heart environmentalist thought up an event idea that, to me, seems like a last hurrah for the river. He asked Bob to bring the Cherokees. I told him that we're going to do a river day. Could he please bring as many of, of the people from Cherokee as possible? And there were a lot of Cherokee there. And a bunch of us from the tribe went over there, and it was to be held at the Chota site. Alfred and Carolyn attended. And so that day was full of singing. Um, the lawyers were there. Zig was there. Etnar was there. Uh, anybody that had fought it. Uh, that was the last public gathering of, of a, gr a big group of people. It's the first time I'd ever been to Chota. I drove down with a number of students from Michigan who had helped on the brief, who were very, very deep into... Uh, both the importance of the case, the merits of the case, and the law of the case. We arrived, I think, late afternoon. And as I recall, we didn't have tents. We just slept in sleeping bags out in the meadow. There was dew on us uh, in the nighttime. But it was really beautiful. I remember getting up in the morning before sunrise and I went down to the river and was just standing there and there was fog lying on the river. And do you know how when there's fog, sound travels a long distance? So I heard this splash and then la, 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 the ululation. And I said to my, what's that? Oh, that's a Cherokee going to water. And I heard it again, la, 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 splash. It was October the 20th, beautiful day, 1979. And, and going to water in the morning wa was a ritual. And, and that really was a perfect way to start the day. And as we came into town and 
came down the road, we started seeing uh, effigies of Indians hanging in the trees and uh, tar paper tacks all over the roads, giving people fat tars. Somebody came in and said, I got two flat tires. Somebody put roofing nails out on the road. So, so we stopped people from driving in and we said, you know, park and walk. And then David Freeman, the chairman of TVA. Aubrey Wagner had retired the previous year. Somehow we got a message to him and he quickly sent down a, a truck with a big magnet that ran across the road and picked up all the nails. And he said, uh, we don't want our protesters to have uh, flat tires. So the Cherokees and other protesters were able to have a safe passage to their sacred site one last time. And you could see, the, you know, they were wrapped in their colorful blankets and they had Amanita Sequoia, who was kin to the real Sequoia, and he did his magic to put the quietus on the whole thing. Was, I mean, my eyes were wide that day. Alfred brought his boat and Marianne and Sally and I can't swim a lick, but we got to float down a, a section of the, of the river. And then the flatbed truck arrived and the band. It was clear that the flatbed truck was going to be where everything happened because we would be up high and then everybody in the crowd could see us. And we were pretty sure since we cars had started coming early in the morning that there was going to be a large group. It was rousing. You know, we have a lot of fight in us. The Cherokee are giving us one more bite at this rotten apple. The Cherokee spoke beautifully. Alfred spoke beautifully. It was just a day to be together and, and celebrate the river and to hope that the Cherokee could do what we couldn't. And I don't think we started until like noon or one o'clock. But by that time, we needed something because people were just milling around. And so when the band starts playing... Gary Breedlove and friends, I think, they're the ones that came up with the song. And they teach the crowd to sing Damn the TVA and Save the Little Tea. Little Tennessee flows in my dreams. When I was young, it was just a mountain stream Where the Cherokee lived and roamed across the land Now all they want to do is build another dam I say damn the TVA and save the little tea Why can't they see what that river means to me? Today, the Cherokee joined other opponents of the dam, including environmentalists and farmers, in a rally to stop Teleco. The this Indians time, CBS no was there. And then this guy from the ATF, he came to, up to me on the flatbed, and I saw him, he had a badge on, and I thought, no, no, this is legal. And he said, no, it's not legal because we've had a bomb threat. You have to clear the field. I went to the mic. We've been told by the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agents that there's been a bomb threat, and they want us to clear the field. 
does anyone want to leave the field? <laughs> and there was this, no! And the TVA and save the little team. Why can't they see what that river means to me? And so when the bomb threat went off, they just, everybody just went on about their business. No, nothing was going to stand in our way of having a good time that day. And save the little team. Well, I say, damn TVA, and say the little team. Why can't they see what that river means? It was a good day, but it was also a sad day. Because on the way home, it was like, uh, gosh, look what's going to be lost. Another opportunity to see what's lost. A few weeks after River Day, the Cherokee case was in Judge Taylor's court. And we were pretty sure that Taylor would say no. He issued an opinion saying, I dismiss this case because you cannot have religious rights unless you own the land you're standing on, which is an outrageous. And, and it went up to the circuit. We've seen this pattern before. And, and the circuit basically said, that is not a valid legal argument. But then they invented this idea of centrality, that there was no evidence that the Little Tennessee River Valley was central to the Cherokee religion. Really? What about everything Amanita said? When you say Chota was the Jerusalem of the Cherokees, you're saying that's the center of Cherokee religion. Amanita used to say, if this river is ever damned, it will be the death of the Cherokee religion. And even more, Gamanitsa Sequoia and Lloyd Sequoia, they said, we're going to be dead within a year if you destroy the heart of the Cherokee River. And they both were dead within 14 months. After River Day, while the Cherokee case was going through the courts, the Ritchie family came face to face with their fate. November the 11th, 1979, on a Sunday. It was Veterans Day. And um, Daddy was a U.S. Naval veteran. He'd served in the South Pacific. Carolyn has written a book about growing up in the midst of losing her family's farm. This is a bit from a draft. And now on this Veterans Day, he was being booted from the land he had so carefully and diligently farmed and nurtured. I had a difficult time absorbing this finality for the whole thing was a downright and dirty crying shame, and it was a disgrace. Sunday was the last night all six of us slept in our own beds in the only home we'd ever known. At age 24, I struggled to cope with the reality of leaving not only the security of my home, but the farmland I love so dearly. I'm sorry. Carolyn wrote about the day her mother witnessed the demolition of their home and the closing of the gates. And in the area below the orchard, a massive hole was carved out of the ground and the mangled remains of our wooden structures were pushed, shoved, and packed into that grave that would cradle the last existing evidence of any life at all. Our house was the last to be demolished in the 38,000 acre project. Thursday, mid-morning, November 29, 1979, quietly with no formal announcement or warning to anyone, least of all, the Cherokee, TVA moved forward with their long-planned procedures to dam the Little T. 
didn't take long before acetylene torches cut the cable on the sixth and last seven-ton gate. The shameful deed was done by 11.23 a.m. That morning, November 29, 1979, the Little Tennessee River slowly met its death. Wouldn't you know it, Aubrey Wagner had a front row seat as he watched a crane slide that last couple of gates into position on TVA's last dam. Rising three-fourths of a foot per hour, the river was eight and a half feet out of its banks by midnight, and come Saturday night would be flowing over the spillways, covering the crops, still waiting for harvest. In the span of only 19 days, we had been evicted from the farm, our house had been bulldozed, buried in a hole, and now we were watching the little tea vanish day by day, choking under its own backwater. The community we loved and knew so well was being erased from the map. We spent as much time as we could with the dying river and the community before it completely disappeared from sight. We grieved over the destruction of so much. We were sickened by the vast archaeological loss along with the fact that our community with its colorful characters were now wiped out from the face of the earth. Future generations would never know the beauty of a full moon's reflection as it danced on the flowing waters of the Little Tennessee River. It was hard to stand by and watch, but we seemed compelled to stay with our friend to the very bitter end. Perhaps one of the most tragic aspects of this story is that at this point, finally, now, the news media was taking note of what was happening. Two years after the dam's completion, CBS ran a four-minute segment about the individuals who had lost their homes. Gene Ritchie and Nellie McCall were interviewed and featured. But as Bernard Goldberg reports, it looks as though the only casualties at Teleco are human beings. It's been nearly two years since Nellie McCall was forced to move from her home. Nearly two years since the wood frame house she lived in since the Depression was destroyed by the Tennessee Valley Authority to make way for its steel and concrete teleco dam project. Most of Nellie McCall's neighbors sold out to the TVA without much of a fuss, but a few held out, bitter that they had to leave against their will. The hell of a country. The teleco dam and lake were built on a foundation of dirt, rock, and despite appearances, more than a little bitterness which is as strong today as it was in the fall of 1979. What would be any different to what Russia does and what they do? Not any different. If somebody comes in, burns your home, burns your furniture, they did. And I was 75 years old and had no place to go. What would you do? In the news footage, Nellie's white hair is curled, framing her face and her thick frame glasses, and she's wearing a blue dress with white polka dots. What makes this news segment different from other national coverage I've seen is they finally challenged the economics of the project. Why is the controversy still continuing? Because the TVA said it was bulldozing homes and barns and farmland to create not only the dam and lake, but also a visionary model community around the lake, complete with new homes, modern industry, and high-paying, badly-needed jobs. So why the controversy? 
Because today, nearly two years later, there is no model community. No new homes, no new industry, no new jobs. Two years ago, Jean Ritchie lived here. Today, the house is gone, replaced by weeds. Jean Ritchie had a 119-acre farm. Only three of those acres were flooded for the lake. The rest of her land was to be part of the model community that today still doesn't exist. When we go back there, it's just like going home. When you ever into that land, children were born, grew up there. I think that they'll sell it for a lot more than they gave us for it. And we could be living right there, just, just like we always were, farming. To the TVA, this is not just a lake. This is progress, plain and simple. To some of the people who used to live here, it's not so plain, not so simple. Now I'll be angry as long as I live. Bernard Goldberg, CBS News, Loudoun County, Tennessee. That's our report for this Tuesday. Dan Rather, CBS News, New York. Good night. And that's it. It seems to really end on a sad note. It was great that the Cherokees learned so much about their history and that, as we know, the Sequoia Birthplace Museum is there and the Cherokees have some kind of representation. But there are so many loose ends, Ariel. This can't be the end. Okay, you're right. I know. There are a lot of unanswered questions, like what happened to the fish? And where is everyone today? And how does the TVA answer for this folly in their own history? And I will do my best to address all of it in our next and last episode of The Story of Tanasi. You can find images of Riverday, Bob, Jean, and other people and places we talked about on our website at middleofeverywherepod.org or on Instagram and Facebook at middleofeverywherepod and Twitter at rural underscore stories. If you want to see some of the great behind-the-scenes stuff from this episode, sign up for our newsletter. You'll see extra images, read side stories, and get to know more crazy details. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Ariel Lavery, with editorial help from my co-host, Austin Carter. Our editor is Naomi Starbin. Thank you to Elijah Borwick and Zachary Lamb for their excellent voice acting. And of course, Zig Platter for playing himself. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.